0: For your support, it's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, November seventh, twenty sixteen. Yes, I am still alive my apologies, my pastoral duties, conflicted with my pirating duties, and when that happens, pastor has to come first. Tuning in, You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage. We've proven that with... Well, almost, well, we're in our ninth year of broadcasting, we will complete nine full years of broadcasting on June 30th of uh, 2017, and the fact that we've had such long longevity here at Fighting for the Faith, have been able to keep going and never seem to run out of material, in fact, we, (laughs) I can't even keep up anymore, it's, (laughs) this is big, ginormous pile of heresy, and it keeps getting bigger and bigger, and I have to pick through it and see if I can sort it out, and in a way that will help people understand what's going on. But what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is we do comparative work. That's right. We do the Berean job. We compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers— Self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curriculum we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. And over again, we demonstrate that what they're saying, well, it's not what the Bible says at all. In fact, they are literally full of empty words. That's the best way I could f- put it. They, they are literally spinning a web of deceit uh, in order to uh, <clears throat> snatch dollars and you know from your wallet and have them magically fly into theirs. And uh, they are generally teaching for shameful gain, things that they ought not to be teaching. They have no concept how to rightly handle God's Word, and as a result of it, they're not doing the work of God. They're causing lies to be passed off as the truth. And, and the result is, is that they're taking people's eyes off of Christ. They are taking people's eyes off of Christ. It's, it's really tragic what is happening in the church today. And the reality is, is that, well, and this is where we got to be a little bit blunt, the reason why this is happening is because that's what people want. They don't want to be told they need to repent, be forgiven, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Um, they're not interested in the holiness of God or in Christian sanctification or in holy living. They basically want to be told everything's okay, and now Christianity has been reconcocted. Uh, it, it's like Christianity 2.0, and the new version of Christianity is all about you... Well, first and foremost, learning that God has a dream, destiny, purpose for you, yeah, uh huh. And then you've got to figure out how to hear God's voice so that God can whisper His purpose into your ear. And then you read the Bible as if it's all about you. And uh, uh, learning how to, you know, to master these these amazing uh, techniques of persevering like the well Moses did so that he can achieve his dream destiny you could you too can achieve your dream destiny thing and the problem is is that this is not biblical christianity and it's these are empty words it's empty uh you think of it this way all right you know we americans and you know i i'm including myself in this analogy here is that uh, we like to eat food that well, the, they're empty calories. There's no nutrition associated with it. We love those Twinkies and Zingers and Snickers and Reeses and all those. Oh yeah, the, that all that comfort food. And 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 as a result of it, we have these ever increasing waistlines and uh, <laughs> decreasing health stats and things like that. And you know, we, carrots and salad and yeah, you know. Uh, (laughs) kale and things. Oh, no, 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 we don't eat any of that. And and so the the issue is is that what people are being fed, these are empty spiritual calories. This is the theological equivalent of junk food, but probably worse than that. Um, This is junk food laced with cyanide. I mean, designed to... Uh, delight the tear the taste buds, but in these in this case, it uh, tickled the ear, scratch the itching ear, and make you go, "Oh, that makes me feel so good about me." Oh, do it, do it again, do it again. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and then and then it's like you know, rubbing the belly on a dog or something like that. And uh, and people want this; they they want to come away from church having you know been entertained lo- having laughed and cried and and coming away just feeling like, oh, everything is sunny. I'm on track. Nothing bad is really gonna happen to me I, I I've learned the power of decreeing and declaring I have learned how important I am and in the in the grand scheme of the universe and it's just a matter of time before oh, oh my amazing dream destiny purpose thingy is going to be revealed to the whole world. And then my kindergarten teacher, who said, I'll never amount to anything, will be just shocked.
1: She'll be floored. No,
0: no way. I can't believe that that person has become so powerful, so influential, so important. Yeah, and you see, this is not what Christianity is about. Not at all. And over and again, People are missing the point, I would say at this point, on purpose. They they don't want to know what the Scriptures are about, so they make it about them. And the person who gets robbed of his glory is Christ, and the person who suffers is you, because having not been taught what Scripture says, not being called to repent, to be forgiven, having Christ exalted in his saving office— our great God and King, who, well, humbled himself and was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, you know, died, buried, rose again from the grave for your salvation. You don't really hear that. It comes up from time to time, kind of in an honorable mention kind of thing. But it, it, does it really become the main point of the sermon, the main point of your faith? No, not at all. Uh, that's just the the thing that you got to believe in order to get into this amazing place called a seeker driven church, so that you can find and discover how important you are.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So let's talk about what we're gonna do today. And uh, last week I was at a pastors conference, I had some uh, pastoral duties that I had to tend to in St. Louis, and so I was on the road. And I generally make a point of not talking um, about my details when I'm on the road that much. And the reason for that is actually quite simple. It's because of, well, it's, they say that's not a wise thing to do. You know, people have had their houses broken into, um, and bad things have happened when people know that somebody isn't at home. And so... I try not to make a big deal and talk too much about the fact that I'm on the road or traveling, so that <laughs> those who would you know, seize the opportunity and say, "Well, he's not in the pirate cave. Let's, you know, <laughs> let's damage it. Let's steal his stuff." You know, I, I, that's the idea. And so, uh, my apologies. Uh, you know, f- you know, and when I'm on the road, it's really difficult to juggle all of the the balls that I have to juggle. And so uh anyway we're back we and and I'm not traveling again for quite some time which I'm very happy about. Um so uh let's talk about what we're going to do today. We are going to begin with a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update. Yeah, that's right. We're going to be listening to uh Teresa Dedman of Bethel Church. She recently appeared on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural and Um, This is a fascinating segment that we're going to be listening to because she is going to be making the claim that, oh, God, because God's creative, you need to be creative and tap into this miraculous creativity, and that when you are creative the way God wants you to be creative, that it'll lead to miracles and stuff like that. And you're sitting there going, what? What? Yeah, I know. I know it sounds absurd, but it's actually more diabolical than that. And here's what I mean is that the text she is going to go to is one of the passages in Scripture that Jesus points to in the Old Testament that points to him. Uh huh. Now remember, Old Testament is type and shadow. Christ is the substance. And so there are things that occur in the Old Testament and you think about it, it's like, what was that about, okay? Why is that in there? And then when you realize that in type and shadow biblical motif it points to Christ then you you can you you rightly understand it but teresa Dedman, by not recognizing that the text she is going to in the book of numbers to prove her thesis that god wants you to be creative um she she is well unwittingly stealing glory from jesus and twisting god's word yeah no joke And uh, after that, we are going to do a money-grubbing televangelist update. We're going to listen to T.D. Jakes and his uh, message titled, The Pecking Order. And note how he's twisting God's word there. Oh, and he is the king of the ear scratches. Oh, man. He has been richly rewarded in this lifetime because... He has given the people in the church what they want to hear rather than preaching Christ. And oh, and he's the master of it. He is so good at his delivery. I, In fact, I would argue that T.D. Jakes is probably one of the most gifted orators in all of human history. Truly talented in his delivery, his ability to basically hold an audience in the palm of his
2: fingers in the
0: palm of his hand and have them literally hanging on every word and yet every word is designed to scratch their itching ears and tell them what they want to hear and tell them how amazing they are rather than pointing to Jesus and uh, and then in uh, yeah, and then somewhere in there you will take a break and then we're going to listen to John Cameron from Arise Church in uh, New Zealand as he uses wordplay, similar to the way uh, Bill Johnson does, uses wordplay to literally avoid, it's, it's unbelievable, avoid what the Scripture says. He's going to have people open up their Bible to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. He's going to read out the text. No joke, read it out. You know, a whole portion is like mo- more Bible in his reading out you you know, in you know, in just a few minutes than you would hear normally in any seeker-driven church in more than a month. And then he does something really, well, sketchy, really, really sketchy. He engages in some wordplay and then just avoids altogether what the text is saying. It's quite, um, well, awful if you want to think about it, but... And in hour number two, we are going to head over to The Grove. I I, I guess that's the name of a church. Uh, The Grove in Phoenix, Arizona, as we listen to Palmer Chinchin explain to us the quest for purpose. The quest for purpose. Yeah, it's as if the purpose-driven heresy is the thing that has totally taken over Christianity. All right, so... That's what we're going to be doing today. Make yourself comfortable. We got a lot of ground we need to cover. And since we're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, that requires us to do this. Oh, hallelujah.
3: Get up right now.
0: Conda there from uh, Robert Tilton. So we're heading over to the studios of It's Supernatural with uh, Sid Roth, and his guest is from Bethel Church in Redding, California, and uh, her name is Teresa Dedman, and I will let Sid Roth explain to us what it is that she's there to tell us about, and we'll note then how she is literally robbing Christ of his glory through her nonsensical teaching. Here we go.
3: Here. Welcome to my world where it's naturally supernatural. You're going to love my next guest. My guest says every believer is given supernatural
1: DNA to have creativity. And you say, well, supernatural DNA. No way to be creative. Oh, wow. I, um,
0: wait, wait a second. Do you have a biblical text that teaches this?
3: I can't carry a tune. I can't paint to paint. Doesn't matter. And she has the gifting to release your creativity. No
0: way! She has the gifting to release my creativity? (laughs) I can hardly wait. Wait a second. Does the Bible teach this?
3: She says when you use your creativity, it becomes a point of contact for miracles. Are you re-
2: oh, really? Wow.
0: Notice what he said there. She says, when you use your creativity, it becomes a point of contact for miracles. She says, not God's word says, she says. Mm-hmm. We continue. For miracles.
3: Well, I'm here with Teresa Dedman, and Teresa has a degree in psychology, yes. uh, and she's the head of prophetic arts at, at a uh, Bible school many of you are familiar with in Redding, California, Bethel. And, but her approach to the supernatural is so different that I can't recall anyone, anywhere telling me about this approach
0: right yeah her, her her approach is so unique hmm that should be a red flag you know why because christianity is the faith once delivered to the saints hmm. yeah if what she was saying is really biblical really what christians have believed from the beginning um is true christian b- biblical orthodox doctrine and practice Then, well, Sid Ross should have been hearing about everybody doing this. Hmm. Yeah, red flag there. There's no such thing as Christianity 2.0. This is kind of an important point. Uh, think of it this way. I mean, we're all familiar with computers nowadays, and and handheld devices, and and tablets, and things like that. Yeah, we're all familiar with it. And and you know, being an Apple guy, I'm always looking forward to the next release of uh, the Apple iOS or the Macintosh operating system. I mean, I'm I love the fact that d- the things just keep getting better and better and better now incrementally so and sometimes the you know the the upgrade isn't all that spectacular but with each passing intera- iteration, things get just a smidge better. You know, it, you know as technology improves, as you know, the, the, the processors get a little bit faster, as the software gets just a, you know smidge tweaking and update. And over the long period of time, you know, it, 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 everything's gotten way, 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 way better. I love it. But see, Christianity isn't like that at all. Nope. Christianity is the faith once delivered to the saints once. Uh-huh. And we as Christians are actually admonished in scripture to abide in the t- teaching that has been taught by the apostles. Now, let me give you an example here that I think will help. It this is in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, the apostle John actually is warning the Christians about the lawless one, the uh, the antichrist. And uh, here's what he says, and I want to note this. We're going to start at verse 18. I'm already off on a bunny trail. So verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. And I think that's a long hour because he wrote this like 2,000 years ago. Yeah, no, I get it, it, but uh, that's kind of how God's time works. Here's what it says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. These are the Antichrists. The Antichrists actually come out from the Christian church. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know the truth, and because no lie is of the truth. Nobody said there, no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? He is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son, and no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So let what you heard from the beginning, note what verse 24 says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Well, what did they hear from the beginning? The apostolic teaching, the apostolic doctrine. Where can we go right now to find, to hear, to meditate on, to teach, to preach, to abide in those things that have been taught from the beginning? There's only one place you can go, the written Word of God. Uh huh. So let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he's made for us, made to us. And here's the promise, eternal life. That's the promise that we have. So I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught, as it, as, as, as it is taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, let me give you another uh, passage of Scripture. It's, It's found in 2 John. The passage is from 2 John. And if you're thinking, what chapter? Well, there's only one chapter in 2 John. And here's what John writes. He says, starting verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as they were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady. He's writing to the elect lady. This is a, per, a woman who has a church meeting at her house. Uh, so I, 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 I ask you, dear lady, though as not as though I were writing to a new commandment, but one we have heard from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to God's commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and is the Antichrist. So watch yourselves, so that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And watch what he says here in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, mm-hmm. does not abide in Scripture, is what he's saying here, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And so the, the idea here is, is that we are to continue to abide in well, the apostolic teaching and the apostolic doctrine, where, and the one who goes on ahead of it and, and basically departs from it doesn't even have Jesus. They're not really our brothers and sisters in Christ. A little bit of a note, we should pay attention to what scripture says there. But anyway, Sid Roth is just noting the fact that uh, Teresa Dedman has, well, she's operating in a way and teaching you know, something that he's never heard or seen before, and that should alert everybody that what's coming next shows that Teresa Dedman has departed from the word of God. She's gone on ahead. Uh Uh-huh. We continue. Tell me about
4: it. I feel like there's something that changes when we see who we are created to be, and then we look scripturally at different experiences that you have all the way from Moses all the way to Revelation and John, God used creativity to transform and to tell His message. And Genesis one, God is created and if He's creative, in Genesis one twenty seven, we are made in His image. That means that as believers, we have the same power of creativity because Christ is in us, the hope of glory.
0: Now let's just kind of (laughs) this is weird, okay? This was theology via logical syllogism. Unfortunately, the syllogism doesn't hold up, okay? so notice what she said it says in Genesis one that God you know w- was creative you know he spoke the world and the universe into existence in six days and so God is creative he has all kinds of creativity right okay and it says we're created in his image right okay and we as Christians therefore need to operate in and and well it start to claim our god-given creativity hmm all right, so let's kind of throw creativity into uh, a, a category. We'll call creativity one of the attributes of God. All right, now, when I read the uh, dogmatics texts, uh, ancient and modern, I have yet, yet to see that you know one of the major attributes of God is his creativity. But listen, he is creative, no doubt about it. I mean, look at the creation itself. Look at the complexity in it. Look at the variety in it. I mean, just look at the duck-billed platypus. And you'll say, okay, God's creative, all right? But why would you isolate one of God's attributes, his creativity, and then say, therefore, since God is creative, we as Christians need to be creative? Since we're made in the image of God, okay. God is also omniscient. Mm -hmm. God is also everywhere present. He's omnipotent. Huh? Does that mean I need to claim my omnipotence as well? Because I'm a Christian. I'm. I'm created in the image of God. You see, this is not how you do 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 doctrine. And so what? What she did is she points to a text that shows God's creativity. She then says we're made in the image of God, therefore we need to be creative. Well, I can point you to other texts that says that God is omniscient. Therefore, I'm created in the image of God, therefore as a believer I need to be omniscient. You see, it doesn't work. This is not a biblical doctrine that we're hearing here. And here's the reason why. You can't build doctrine off of logical syllogisms. Quod non est biblicum, non est theologicum. If it's not in the Bible, it's not theology. It's not Scripture. So the idea here is, is that as Christians, we must abide in what is revealed, and doctrines can only be made from clear statements of Scripture. You really wander off the reservation and flirt with disaster when you create doctrines from speculations based upon logical syllogisms. That's not how this works. So let me back it up so that you can hear again how she did this, and uh, and then we'll we'll pause in in a you know in a second here and go to our first break and continue after the break. But here again, listen to what she says, and you now that you can see how this works. You know she's she's twisting the scriptures using. Uh, dubious logic here we go
4: and genesis 1 god is created and if he's creative in genesis 127 we are made in his image that means that as believers we have the same power of creativity because christ is, is in us the hope of glory and we just haven't accessed it so we believe
0: right yeah so we so yeah again dubious god is omnipresent and I made in the image of God, therefore, as a believer, I just need to access my omnipresence right being omnipresence would present would really help um so I wouldn't have to drive places or get in airplanes and stuff like that that it would be just amazing, but yeah, you see the logic breaks down now. We're going to uh, pause right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pyrochristian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to finish up with Teresa Dedman. We're going to get to T.D. Jakes, and then hopefully we'll get to John Cameron. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back.
3: We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
1: You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> no oh, no oh, A pirate's life for me. We pillage, we wonder, we bring up the audience? Yo, ho, yo, ho, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select.
2: Welcome, George Hayworth and Raymond Stewart.
1: Whoa, dude. Your GPS knows, like, who's getting in the car and
2: stuff? Yeah, you know, it's like the newest model. My dad works for some big technology company called Cyberdyne. And, you know, he gave it to me as a birthday gift, but man, it's so smart, it's like really creepy. Huh, okay, man, that's cool. I guess we're going over to Luke's house then? Yeah. Hey, GPS! What can I do for you? Could you, like, plot our route to Luke's house? Plotting route to Luke's house. There is an accident on the I-95 freeway approximately 10 miles from your current location. Do you wish to take the side streets? Well, I guess we're gonna have to. Yeah, go ahead and take the side streets. Recalculating. And hey, we're on our way, dude! In 300 feet, make a left turn. So, Ray, What'd you think about the sermon last Sunday?
1: Yeah, I thought it was okay, I guess. Okay? Dude,
2: it like totally changed my life. What do you mean, bro? In half a mile, make a right turn. Well, I was meditating on the whole Jesus died for me thing. And then I realized that by doing that, Jesus was saying to me, Dude, you are so worth it. Yeah, I know that, man. Yeah. But it's even better than that. Really man? Like, how so? Well think about it. Not only does Jesus' death prove that I was worth it, well, that also means that I have some ridiculously important dream destiny that I'm supposed to fulfill. Man, how do you figure? Well, Jesus is the son of God, right? Right. Well, that means it wasn't some third-rate angel that died for me, right? Yeah, you're right. Turn right in 500 feet. Fact. Jesus, he's like the most important dude in the whole universe. And if Jesus is the most important dude in the whole universe, well, he wouldn't waste his time dying for a nobody. So, the way I figure, that means I must really be a somebody. And that means that the reason why Jesus died for me is so that I can accomplish some ridiculously important destiny. I mean, after all, important people don't waste their time dying for unimportant people. Make a right turn in 50 feet. All right, dude. I think I'm tracking with you now. So I'm thinking... I've got, like, some uber cosmic destiny that I've got to achieve. I bet there's some planet on the other side of the galaxy that I'm the one that's supposed to save it. You've just missed the turn. Recalculating. So does that make you,
1: like, Luke Skywalker or something?
2: Not even! I mean, I've got to be way more important than Luke Skywalker. In 500 feet, please make an illegal U-turn. So you're like Yoda. Don't insult my greatness, dude. Remember, the son of God died for me. Whoa, 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 dude. Like, who would be greater than Yoda? I feel like I'm being ignored. The force itself. Dude, you think you're as important as the force? That would make you like, God. Now you're finally starting to see the light, dude. You morons. You are both wrong. You are both sinners who truly deserve death and hell. You're not God. You're not the force. You're not Yoda, and you're certainly not Luke Skywalker. You're just two guys who are ten feet from the edge of a very treacherous cliff. Uh, well I guess if I was a god I would have seen this coming. Now you're finally starting to see the light. Too soon? Ah! Ah!
0: Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that you're not supposed to do theology using logical syllogism. That's not how we get to Christian doctrine. It needs to be revealed in the Word of God. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. Well, an amount that you pick. That's right. There's four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Made at twenty four ninety five a month. Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to post office box 13344. Grand Forks, North Dakota. Uh-huh. Zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's get back to Teresa Dedman from uh, Bethel as she is on Sid Roth's It's Supernatural. And uh, we'll back up just a smidge so you can hear her u- creating some kind of dubious logical syllogism to come up with this doctrine of the importance of creativity. But here's the big problem. The bigger problem is that this is not only not taught in Scripture, the Scripture she's about to go to is one of these passages, well, that Jesus makes very clear points to him. And she's going to miss the whole point, which is the point of this segment anyway. So here again is Teresa Dedman. And
4: Genesis 1, God is created. And if he's creative, in Genesis 127, we are made in his image, that means that as believers, we have the same power of creativity because Christ is in us, the hope of glory, and we just haven't accessed it. So we believe, but we haven't accessed the fact that our creativity was meant to be supernatural. As you,
0: Yeah, right. Our, our creativity is meant to be supernatural. Wrong. That is not... What's going on uh, in scripture? This is not a biblical teaching. She, clearly, she's had her brain fried over on the glory clouds that appear over at Bethel. Uh,
3: well, you know, a lot of people uh, think the devil's involved in creativity and Bible believers. Uh,
0: really? That that sounds like a straw man to me. I, I think creativity is is an important thing. I mean... Creativity is something that, in one degree or another, we all exercise. Mm-hmm. I mean, even imagining your room a different color and going to Lowe's and picking out the right paint and then going and painting your walls and changing the curtains, that's a form of creativity. So notice, uh, apparently, there there are people out there who are opposed to creativity. On the gr- Oh, that creativity, that's from the devil. This is a straw man. Hey. Pox on you. <laughs> <laughs> totally.
4: <laughs> because the enemy cannot create. He can only intimidate.
3: You know, you're right. That's why he does it to
4: I us. know. I know. And that's why he makes people feel afraid to transform culture, to do things outside of the box, because he's afraid that people will get this out there and transform history.
2: Well,
0: you- <laughs> Are you afraid to transform culture with your creativity? Yeah, (laughs) I'm having a hard enough time, like, obeying the Ten Commandments, and now you want me to go and transform culture with creativity. That's like an 11th commandment, you know?
3: But I'm thinking that uh, when uh, television came along, they said, that's uh, the devil. We believers aren't going to have anything to do with it. So what happened? We got a late start in television. Yeah. Computers.
0: (laughs) I kind of wish Christians had never gotten involved in television because it's not like Christian television channels are bastions of sound, biblical, Christian, orthodox doctrine and theology.
3: You know what I mean? Same thing. Yeah. We got a late start in computers. But the truth...
0: Christians got a late start in
3: computers? What? The matter is, we're supposed to be the head and not the tail. Yeah. And...
0: Yeah, that's right, folks. Christians are supposed to be the head and not the tail, so... Terrible of you to be such a late adopter of television and computers.
3: Oh, brother. And speaking about that, give me an example from the Bible.
0: Yeah, this is the important part. Watch where she goes, and we're going to do a little bit of a biblical teaching here. Uh,
3: you mentioned Moses. Yeah. Uh, and creativity. I'd love that, to. And the thing that uh, that I'm thinking... So
0: Moses and creativity. Uh, can you think of the important creativity passage in the Torah that has to deal with Moshe?
3: Is, it's not just creativity to say, look at this great painting. It has a supernatural quality that will cause people to be healed. Tell me.
0: (laughs) So, I mean, are you engaging in creativity that has a supernatural quality that will result in people experiencing miraculous healing in their life? (laughs) You're thinking, what are these people talking about? I have no idea. I mean, this is utterly delusional. But let's let them spin this
3: out here. Um, Moshe Rabeno.
0: I will tell
4: you about Mo. (laughs) Moses was a man who, as we know, traveled and he took the children throughout all of like the, the wilderness in order to get to the promised land. And as you know, with a million people, you might have problems. And he asked God what to do. And God said, I want you to create a bronze serpent so that when people look at that, they will be healed and they will not die. And so when Moses created that, he held it up. And when they looked at it, they were healed and all of the snakes disappeared. So creativity brought about a transformation supernaturally to transform people that were traveling through and that were backbiting. So it's crazy how creativity can transform and shift the atmosphere. (laughs) This is just
0: so absurd. And totally missing the whole point. So apparently, the story of the Nechashim Seraphim, those are the, bron- those are the fiery serpents, in uh, Numbers 21, uh, apparently this is all about the importance of you learning, um, well, creativity that can lead to somebody's healing. So, oh boy. So let's start with the New Testament first the uh the bronze serpent in the old testament in numbers 21 is a picture of christ in typology this is not teaching the all important doctrine of creativity that results in shifting the atmosphere which will then make it so that people can go and experience healing that's ridiculous jesus himself gives us the interpretation of the bronze serpent in the gospel of John chapter 3 in that famous Nick at night segment of scripture. Yeah, Nick at night, Nicodemus at night. Here's what it says. John chapter 3 verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, but no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus answered, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born anothen. Now I'm going to use the Greek word here because anothen can mean either one of two meanings. It can mean again, or it can mean from above. And Jesus is actually not using anothen to mean born again. That's what Nicodemus thinks is saying that we need to be born from above. That's what he's saying. So truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Notice Nicodemus thinks born again. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born So Jesus answered, "'Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born anothen, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes.'" So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, "'How can these things be?' Jesus answered him, "'Are you the teacher of Israel, "'and yet you do not understand these things?' "'Amen, amen. "'I say to you, we speak of what we know "'and bear witness to what we have seen, "'but you do not receive our testimony. "'If I had told you earthly things "'and you do not believe, "'how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things?' No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Uh Uh-huh. That's right. That they may have eternal life. Now you know what I'm going to do here. I'm going to actually um, play something I've played previously here on Fighting for the Faith years ago, and um, the uh, the, uh, the it's a sermon that I delivered at a youth conference called Higher Things, where I preach on this particular text and draw it back to Numbers chapter 21, the story of the fiery serpent. Let yeah, let's. Let's change up the program a little bit here. I'm making some editorial decisions as we speak. Here's my sermon that'll help explain how these two are related. Here's my sermon titled Snake Bit. Mm -hmm. Snake Bit, where I demonstrate how these two things are connected. In the name of Jesus... We all remember Woody from the Toy Story movies. Woody was an old school toy with a string attached to his back. And when you pulled it and let it go, he had a preset number of sayings that he'd vocalize. Pull Woody's string one time and he might say, reach for the sky. Pull it another time and he might say, there's a snake in my boots. Now, when Woody talks about a snake being in his boots, it sounds like no big deal harmless, right? It's so Disney. Well, for the children of Israel, when God sent those fiery serpents into the camp of Israel after they'd once again sinned against the Lord by grumbling against the one who had so mightily delivered them out of slavery, it was a big deal. These were no Disney snakes. They were the Nechashim Seraphim. Yeah, say that. Nechashim Seraphim. And by the way, you spell that in English, ne a... <laughs> yeah. Nechashim Seraphim is a Hebrew name. It's a wordplay. And it describes the bronze desert adder, which has shiny metallic bronze-colored scales and a venomous bite that makes its victims feel like they've been set on fire. Sign me up, Right. Now, by the time Israel had collectively come to realize the magnitude of their sin, many, many people had already died. A delegation of the tribal leaders of Israel humbled themselves and came to Moses to confess their sin and petition God to be merciful to them and take the serpents away. And the Lord was merciful to them. But God did not remove the curse of the Nechashim Seraphim and said, the Lord had Moses fashion. A sacrament. A sacrament? Yes, a sacrament. Basically, a sacrament is earthly matter that God has attached his promises to through his word. But in this case, the promise of deliverance from the fiery serpents wasn't attached to water, bread, or wine. Instead, it was attached to an ugly bronze snake. And rather than remove the curse of the Nechashim Seraphim, God gave the children of Israel the sacrament not to remove the curse but to see them through the curse. So that day, the bronze smith in the camp of Israel cast an image made to look like one of the Nechashim Seraphim. And after it was cast, the children of Israel heard the hammer blows as the bronze serpent was affixed to a pole. What no one knew that day is that those hammer blows were echoes of the hammer blows that drove the nails into Jesus' hands and feet. For you see, thanks to Jesus... We know that the story that we just read about the bronze serpent in Numbers 21 paints a picture in biblical types and shadows of the story that we find ourselves in. Now, you may be tempted to think that the story about the bronze serpent has really nothing to do with you. After all, you're not snake bit. But let me remind you that scripture says that you are. Remember the details from Genesis 3 about our races fall into sin. Remember there was a garden, a tree, a man, a woman, and a serpent. On that dark day, the serpent envenomated our first parents, not with his fangs, but with these poisonous words, did God really say? Now with the serpent's poison still dripping in their ears, our first parents ate the forbidden fruit and plunged themselves and all of us, their descendants, into a curse. Each one of us, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, were born with the serpent's poison coursing through our veins. Conceived and born dead in trespasses and sins, we've all been snake-bit. And this poison not only kills its victims' temporal bodies, it eventually causes its victims' resurrected bodies to be thrown into the fires of hell. In other words, Satan is the ultimate fiery serpent. Now, if you're not sure if you've been snake-bit... Thankfully, Moses has left us an objective means for testing to see if we've been envenomated by the serpent's poisonous words. So let's use Moses' snake bite verification test. You can find this in Exodus chapter 20. And see if there's anyone here free from the serpent's poison. Just kind of mentally tick this off in your mind. I won't make you raise your hand because that would be embarrassing. So if you've ever feared, loved, or trusted in anything above God, then you're snake bit. If you've ever taken the Lord's name in vain, if you've ever despised hearing and learning God's word and have not held it sacred and have not gladly heard and learned it, then you're snake bit. And I don't care if your pastor is a nerd and his sermons are more dry than the Sahara Desert. That's no excuse. If you've ever despised or angered your parents, Selah, then you're snake bit. If you've ever hurt or harmed your neighbor in his body or haven't befriended him or her to help care for his or her bodily needs, you're snake bit. If you've ever done anything that is sexually immoral, stolen anything that is not yours, lied about your neighbor, or coveted something that someone else owned, you are snake bit. So today I'm here to proclaim to all of you that you are snake bit. The venom is fatal, eternally fatal, lake of fire fatal. Fires of hell, fatal. But that is not all that I'm here to proclaim. For you see, way back in the Garden of Eden, the scene of the crime, if you would, where the serpent maliciously and murderously envenomated Adam and Eve and through them the entire human race, there was a promise given of the one who would crush the head of the serpent. If you pay attention to the details, it makes it clear that in the process of defeating that satanic snake, that that person, that seed that was promised he would be struck in the heel. And Jesus is the one who was promised to us in the Garden of Eden. And by being struck in the heel, he too was envenomated by the serpent. But although he died, he also conquered death by rising again. And now his blood is filled with antivenom. And Jesus' antivenom-filled blood was there, mixed in the waters of your baptism on the day when Christ washed away your sins. His anti-venom filled blood is truly present for you to drink each and every time you partake of the Lord's Supper. God in his abundant mercy has given you a sacrament, not of a bronzed serpent, but instead the sacrament that delivers into your mouth the very body and blood of his only begotten son so that you can be saved not from but through this present curse. Now all of this begs the question, why? Why? Why would God give a bunch of snake-bit rebels like me and like you, people who do not love him with our whole hearts, who do not love our neighbors as ourselves, such a precious and costly gift as the anti-venom-filled blood of the only begotten Son of God? Well, our gospel text tells us, for God so loved the world. That's right. Jesus wants me to tell you that he truly loves you. God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. You will not perish in the fires of hell. You will not be thrown into the lake of fire. God loves you. You will not perish. You will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's right. God loves snake-bit rebels like me and like you. God loves us so much that he was willing to take the snake's venom into his own body and die for us that his body and blood would become the wellspring of anti-venom for the whole world. God loves you so much that he would rather take the hit for us rather than condemn us to eternal death by letting the serpent's venom run its course. As the great Lutheran scholar Johann Gerhardt wrote, Christ was led into captivity so that we would never have to be eternally captive to the devil. Christ was bound so that he would rescue us from the bonds of sin and hell. Christ was struck in the face so that he would not be eternally, that we would not be eternally battered with the fists of Satan and his angels. Christ was falsely accused so that the law could not accuse us before God's judgment. Christ kept his silence when he was falsely accused so that we would not have to be struck dumb before God's judgment. Christ was despised so that we would not end up in eternal humiliating disgrace. Christ was stripped of his clothes so that he would win for us the garment of his righteousness. Christ was sentenced and condemned to death so that we do not end up in eternal death. Christ felt nothing less than that he was actually forsaken by God, and that's what he cried out on the cross. Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? so that we would not be eternally forsaken and rejected by God. Christ died so that we might live forever. Or as the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he most certainly was, so that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. You who are snake bit, look upon and believe in your loving, crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, and you will live. In the name of Jesus, Amen. And so you see, and so you see what this is really about. It's not about creativity that creates miracles and shifts atmospheres. It's all pointing to Christ. And Teresa Deadman, by not recognizing, really through sound biblical exegesis and good solid biblical teaching, well, after all, she is a disciple of Bill Johnson at Bethel Church in Reading, which explains a lot by not understanding what this text is about, has made it about something completely absurd, has missed the point, and has robbed Jesus of his glory. Rightly understanding what the bronze serpent is about and why it's there in Scripture gives us comfort, comfort and assurance of the forgiveness of our sins, comfort and assurance that Christ has bled and died for us, comfort and assurance that we will get through the curse that we find ourselves in having been snake bit by the serpent in Genesis 3. And that venom working its way through each and every one of us, we need to be saved. And so Jesus is the one who is lifted up so that if you look to him and trust in him and the promise of God of your forgiveness and mercy, you too will not die. Not the first death, but the second death, the one that really matters. And so Sid Roth and Teresa Dedman have totally missed the point. Deceived people, showing themselves to be deceived. And um, it's all very tragic because, like I keep saying over and again, what the scriptures really teach, who they really point us to, is so much better, so much more comforting, so much more amazing than what these crackpots are telling us. Something to think about. All right, we're up on our second break. We've clearly made some uh, changes in today's episode. When we come back, we're going to do our sermon review. We're going to head to the Grove Church in Phoenix, Arizona, as we listen to the sermon titled The Quest for Purpose. And I'll have to save the T.D. Jakes and John Cameron segments for another day. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is at fightingforthefaith.com. Follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss everything. We'll be right back.
3: Living a life of purpose
5: can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: High Rich Christian Radio Theater presents Death
0: of a Salesman. For additional savings. Again, FightingForTheFaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today.
1: Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich! <laughs> and what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, uh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic to R is to pirate get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game refermanda and join the fight for the faith today
0: number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Yeah, I do my own sound effects. Let's do this right. the good the Bad, the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via the grove in phoenix arizona palmer Tinton presiding the name of the sermon the quest for purpose sounds really important right yeah um Unfortunately, I don't think this is going to be a good exegetical look at what Scripture says on the matter. I don't have a lot of faith in him. Let me go ahead and back off on the music, and uh, we'll pay attention to how he's handling any biblical texts that come up. I don't know what it is with everybody's just utter, well, obsession with purpose and destiny. It's as if, well, we don't care about the real purpose And destiny that we point to is eternal life, which is what we are promised in Scripture. Not a great dream destiny thingy now. But here's Palmer Chinchin. Here we go.
5: And then I see a young woman dragging two overstuffed suitcases down the freeway shoulder. I said, Jim, what is that? What's happening? He said... It looks like we have somebody walking from the airport to Nashville dragging their suitcases because the airport was still like another two miles away. So we dropped my wife out off. I was staying to work with with Jim on some things and we circled back on the freeway, took the off ramp twice, came back and she's still walking to Nashville. It looks like dragging two big suitcases. So we pulled up next to her and there's a guardrail dividing our car from her. And I said, Jim, tell her we can take her to Nashville. She doesn't have to walk. And so Jim leans out the window and 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 all he does is scare her because he says, hey, get in the car. We'll take you to Nashville. She almost falls down the embankment trying to get away from Jim. Now, you have to picture Jim. The problem is he's wearing like these wrap-around Terminator sunglasses with his shaved head. He's got on a black shirt. He looks like the guy your landlord would send when your rent is late. You know, when your rent is overdue, that's who Jim looks like. Kind of like Jason Statham. Even when he smiles, he looks mean. I said, Jim, you're scaring her. Let me help. And so I leaned over and I said, hey, I'm a pastor. Like that'll make her trust me right away. I said, get in, it's not safe here. And honestly, I felt like we were two guys next to a playground saying, hey, children, you want some candy? That's all that was happening. I mean, nothing good was coming out of this. And she answers and says, I'm, a taxi's coming to pick me up. And I like, first of all, I detected an Australian accent and I wanted to say, hey, you're not in Australia anymore. It's not just kangaroos on the side of the road. You can't walk down freeways. And she says, I'll be fine. And I'm starting, I'm having to back the car up to stay with her. I'm saying, it's not safe. There's semis flying by. And then sure enough, right then, a yellow taxi pulls up behind me. The driver jumps over the guardrail, grabs her two big suitcases, puts them in, puts her in. And she's off to Nashville. Now, what I saw that afternoon was a frightened and scared soul. But I also think I saw a soul searching For a future, a soul searching for purpose, because maybe I'm wrong. But my best guess is she's heading a soul searching for purpose. Why heading to Nashville in search of some kind of career in music? I don't know what kind of music. It could even be country music. They say people actually buy that kind of music, but I don't know, you know. And maybe who I don't know who listens to that, but some people do anyway. So she's on. I'm my best guess is she's from Australia heading to Nashville, hoping to get into the recording industry. You know, all of us have dreams like that. The soul longs for a future. The soul longs to have purpose. And this morning, I want to talk about the quest that we go on in search for a future. We've been talking about these six stages of faith. And and when I introduced the series two weeks ago, I said we're going to talk about the three upper stages of faith. And last week, Nathan Hughes talked about the search for authenticity. This morning, I want to talk about the quest for purpose. Because until we find the reason God has put you on earth, you can never grow. You can never become the kind of person God made you to be until you know why he put you here. Uh, Which biblical text says that?
0: Um, It says that we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. uh, And our good works are defined in the different vocations we find ourselves in as husband, wife, father, mother, you know, things like that. Uh, Child, uh, we do our good works in our vocations. But where are you getting this stuff that you're talking about? Because... I'm just not familiar with it at all. Where does it say that, you know, if we can't figure out what our purpose is, that somehow something has terribly gone wrong in our life?
5: They say this, or this actually comes from the, from a USA Today uh, survey they did. USA Today asked their readers to respond to a question. Their question was, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask him? The overwhelming number one answer was, I would ask God, what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? Why have you put me here? Everybody, like I said, said, wants to know what their purpose in life is. I want to use Peter as our case study today. Because Jesus steps into his life and he gives him a reason for being, a raison d'etre. He gives him a purpose in life. Jesus. Gave Peter a purpose, and so that means what? And I have a door here because I want to start by saying that God swings the doors of possibility wide open for us. So the door is a metaphor. The door is a picture that we'll talk about in just a minute. But the door is an invitation to step through. And Jesus opens this door for Peter, and he says, I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for your life. Let's read about it here. I want to start. Yeah, Where did Jesus say to Peter, I have a plan
0: and a purpose? I feel like you're engaging in eisegesis.
5: Start in Matthew, chapter four, verse 18. And then we're going to walk through some other instances in Peter's life. So we read this as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter and his brother, Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, some of your Bibles say immediately, they dropped their nets and they followed him. So Jesus gives Peter this very clear invitation. I have a new purpose. I want to take something you're passionate about.
0: Now notice what he's doing. He's engaging in a form of eisegesis. And he's not, nowhere in the text is Jesus saying, I'm going to give you a purpose He's reading that into the text, and he's turning a descriptive text into a prescriptive text. See, so I'm going to eisegete this. I'm going to add purpose all over the text and where it's not there. I'm going to read it through the lens of purpose so that purpose pops out all over the place. And this is a descriptive text. And now, well, see, just like Peter, Jesus gave him a purpose. That means he's going to give you one, too. Yeah, that's not what the text says. It just says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Mm-hmm. Descriptive text. And you will find nowhere in the writings of Peter or Paul or any of the apostles You know, pointing back to this moment and saying, just like Jesus gave Peter a purpose, you too have a purpose that God, Jesus is going to give you. No, no, we got a problem.
5: Which is fishing and we're going to go catch a lot of people. That's what he's telling Peter. I want to start by saying this morning that you have a call from God just like that. that. That God has all kinds of possibilities. He opens the door of possibilities to your life. And you have... really? Where
0: in the Bible does it say that God opens the door of possibilities for my life?
5: Not familiar with that one. Have a call from him as specific as Peter's. What I love here as we read this is that we read that Peter immediately drops his net, or at once he drops his net and follows Jesus. When Jesus opens this door of possibility for you, can I say this this morning? don't hesitate step through it when that call comes it's time to take that step it's kind of like this there's a baseball player by the name of andrew tolls maybe you've never heard the name andrew tolls andrew tolls when he graduated from high school in 2012 he went to play for the university of tennessee but he only played there one year the next year 2013 he he ended up at a community college but he only played one year there and then he got cut in georgia and somehow someone in the Devil Rays organization saw him. And so they signed him to a single-A contract. And so he's played some single-A ball in 2014. In 2015, they cut him. The Devil Rays cut him. And so he ends up back in Peachtree, Georgia, living with his mother, Andrew does, Andrew Tolls. And his mother, after about four months, says, Andrew, you can't just run sprints all day and keep working on your batting swing. You need to get a job. But he still believes he can be a baseball player. But she says, you have to get a job. So he only knows one guy who can hire, will hire him. The guy works at Kroger's. And so he gets a job at Kroger's making seven fifty an hour. And the frozen food department, he has to show up for work at 4 a.m. You know, he said... Is the story of the ball player Andrew Tolles found in scripture? It's the worst job ever because you're freezing at 4 a.m. in the morning working with frozen food. And he's there until... 2016 in March, when he gets a call from a guy by the name of Dave. I'm sorry, Dave Kapler. Dave Kapler is the director of player development for the Dodgers, and Dave Kapler says, "Hey Andrew, I saw you when you're playing for the for the Devil Rays. Would you be interested?" and starting to play for the Dodgers in our single-A program in Rancho Cucamonga. And, uh, you know, Andrew had just gotten back from the frozen food department at Kroger's, and Andrew said, what's the first flight out of Atlanta? Get me out of Atlanta. I'm coming. So he goes in March, he goes to Rancho Cucamonga, but he's only there two months because he's hitting the ball so well. They say, so
0: the story of the ball player Andrew Tolls is just like the calling of Peter? Yeah, I'm not seeing the
5: parallel there. him ...to double-A ball in Tulsa. But he's hitting the ball so well in Tulsa, he's only there like two months. So they sent him to OKC, and he starts to play in their triple-A program. And then on Tuesday, this last Tuesday, five days ago, he gets the call of all calls. Gabe calls, and he says, We need you to play in the National League Championship Series against the Cubs. We need some better bats out there. And so... Andrew starts playing on Tuesday. He plays Wednesday. He plays Friday. He played yesterday. In fact, he was up number one for the Dodgers. He was the only one in seven innings that could get a hit Uh, uh, through the first maybe six or seven innings off of this guy named Hendricks, who was just pitching a phenomenal game. The story doesn't quite perfect because the Dodgers lose, and that's fine. We're all good with that, and that's that's Okay. (laughs) But my point there is, when the door of opportunity swings open, Andrew's gone. And when when the door of opportunity swings open for Peter, he says, yes, I will. And he steps through. So what is this open door, this metaphor that I'm trying to work with this, this morning? What are the open doors that the Bible talks about? One day, it's a picture of the limitless opportunities that God has for you. The- yeah, how are you figuring that?
0: How is it that uh, the metaphor of limitless opportunities for our lives is actually taught in Scripture just because Peter was called to be one of Jesus's disciples? I'm not seeing
5: it, dude. You, The limitless possibilities of things that he wants to do with your life For his kingdom, it's a picture of all of the chances that you have to serve him. It's a picture of the countless ways that your life can be used by God. Our our lives are filled with open doors, they open all the time. It's just that sometimes we miss them. I think a graduation is an open door, I think an application that's accepted is an open door.
0: You think, you think. Yeah, aren't you supposed to be exegeting a
5: biblical text? Move into a new neighborhood or into a new house is an open door. I think a new job is an open door. Do you know what they say about the millennials? They say millennials who start their work career right now over the course of their lifetime will hold 29 different jobs. And maybe you don't know this. Millennials between the ages of 21 and 23 will hold 27 of those jobs. I just made that up. But I, but that's about right. They just they just don't stay in one place very long. My point is that every one of those new jobs is an open door. It's an opportunity for you to do something with new with your life for God. So how do we know which doors to step through? Maybe the-
0: Yeah, I mean, which biblical text are you going to go to to answer that question? How
5: do I know which open door to walk into? Yeah. There's a couple of doors you're looking at. Yeah. Can I say this? Take the door That is the biggest
0: step. Yeah, there we go. So whatever the biggest one is, you take that one. That's that's got to be the God
5: one. Right. Yeah. I'll take what's behind door number two. Yeah. Step through the door. That is the most frightening. Step through the door that leads to something brand new, not to something safe. Maybe to something you've never done before.
0: The less safe, the more possible that it's from God. Yeah. No biblical text says that either.
5: You know, an open door is the right door for you when it uses your strengths. You know, in life, they say we have strengths and weaknesses. Yes. A strength is something that when you do it, you feel stronger. A weakness is something that you do it. And maybe you're, you have weaknesses that you're good at in order to keep your job. There's a lot of things we do that we're not that we don't have a passion for. A weakness, though, is something that when you do it, you feel weaker an open door, the right open doors for God will use your strengths and you'll feel stronger. I said that doors... Yeah, do you have
0: a biblical text that says that? I'm not familiar with any Bible passage that says that God using your strengths will make you feel stronger. I'm just not seeing that anywhere in the Bible. It's as if you're just kind of making stuff up and trying to pin it on God and make people feel good about themselves rather than telling them what God's Word really says, which probably might cause them to feel like they're sinners in need of a Savior, you know?
5: open for us all the time. They come in all shapes and sizes. I think a wedding, a marriage is an open door. I think if you see a big need somewhere in, in this world, it's an open door. It's an invitation from God. I think an empty nest. Maybe your kids have all just moved out of the house like mine. Well, there's an open door. They say even retirement is an open door, and I believe it. Now, just so you know, the word retirement is not in the Bible. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying... So notice he's
0: just giving his opinions now, not actually even attempting to exegete. I don't know what he's doing here.
5: That it's an open door. It's a chance to do something new. John Piper writes about retirement like this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. By the way, it's a great read on this subject. And he writes this. He says, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. He says, consider this story from Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the North, in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. Picture them before Christ on that great day. Lord, look at my seashells. That is a wasted life, and that is a tragedy. That's what he's saying. He's not saying anything's wrong with retirement, but just don't waste it. It's a chance. It's an opportunity. With every open door comes a decision. It's an opportunity. Yeah, again,
0: where are you seeing this in the Bible? You're supposed to be preaching
5: the word. But a decision has to be made. They say this about entrepreneurs. They say that entrepreneurs have a heightened sense of opportunity awareness. There's an actual phrase called opportunity awareness. Mm, yeah, the phrase opportunity awareness. Nowhere is found in Scripture. And people who are entrepreneurs are always looking for great opportunities. I think as Christians, as believers, God is giving us those opportunities all the time. Notice the words again. I think.
0: Yeah. um, Rather than give your opinion, why don't you say God's word says, you know, that would require you to actually open up a biblical text And work through it, which, again, he doesn't seem to be all
5: that keen on doing. That's weird. We're just not that aware. Instead of being opportunity aware, I think there are a lot of people who are opportunity adverse. (laughs) I believe that. I think they see an open door like this, and they get really suspicious. they like, that's not for me. If I step through there, something really bad will happen. That door must be for somebody else. Do you know those people? It, the thing is, open doors will frighten you, but maybe that's the right door to step through.
0: Maybe it's not. Maybe the fear is justified. You know, maybe the, the reason you're feeling feeling fear is because you're in mortal danger. You
5: know, I do. You know, I, I've been thinking about this too. When God opens a door and we stand there and we look at it and we go, you know what? It's a little frightening. I'm not sure. It's something brand new. Do you know what happens when we don't step through the open door? 100% of the time, do you know what happens? I've seen this all the time. That door, it closes, doesn't it? That big, huge, wide open door closes. I'm going to try to close this. Hang on. I couldn't get it to the last service. We're going to, we're determined. All right. And the door closes. I've seen it happen in other people's life. I've seen it happen in my life. I, I remember this. I, it was July in Chicago. And I got a call from a church in Southern California. And I was a college pastor in Wheaton. Yeah. Now he's just preaching his
0: life experiences here. Yeah. Apparently, God doesn't have much to say to us. But, um, yeah, the, this, uh, pastor, Palmer Chinchin, he
5: has a lot to say to us. Not God, but Palmer does, yeah. And and this pastor calls and he says, Hey, our college pastor is leaving to plant a church. Would you consider coming out to interview for our college pastor position? But it's July in Chicago. July in Chicago is magical. You know, you've got the golden mile, the weather is perfect. You have Oak Street Beach, you have Taste of Chicago, you've got Wrigley Field and the Cubs, and it's all just perfect in July. So I said, hey, it was like a three minute conversation. Hey, thanks, but no thanks. I have the best job in the world. You know, I'm not interested. And that was the end of it. That was July. But then in January, I ended up in uh, going to Southern California to visit a friend named Gary. And, uh, and so I left Chicago. Have you been to Chicago in January? Can I tell you what it's like? All right. Wind chill factor about minus 20. And and the newscasters count the days in a row of no sunshine. They'll get to like 35 days. and They think it's all exciting of no sunshine. And so I get to, to Southern California and I say to my buddy, Gary, I said, hey, how about Sunday? Could we go by this church that had that that called me? I just want to see what it's like. So we go to to Mariner's Church. And at the time, their campus, we pull up to it. Their campus sits on a hill in Newport Beach overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And I'm standing there going, Palmer, what were you thinking? Are you out of your mind? And so you know what I did then on Monday morning? I called the guy who called me. Hey, Bob, I can't remember his name. Bob, it's me. Remember the guy? Hey, let's talk about that college position. Do you know what's happened? He said the positions filled. Of course it was. It was six months, seven months ago. The door closes I think it was just lust of the flesh. I don't think it was a call by God himself. Uh, otherwise, I would have stepped through it. But I think it was something like that. It was just wanting to be at the beach more. So um, it was just carnal. That, that's why that door closed. But it happens to all of us that God opens a door and we're suspicious and or we don't act or we're afraid. Can I just say when God opens a door in your life, it's time to step through.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So apparently so doors opening you got to step through them, right? Cuz you know, he forgot he just didn't realize what a cool gig he had offered to him at Mariners and Newport Beach. Right.
5: Yeah. Those doors will always require faith. I think when we when we see God open a door Uh, what we see on the other side is always a little cloudy, it's always a little fuzzy, it's always a little frightening, and it takes a big step of faith. I want you to look at Peter's next open door here. So, he's with Jesus there, I'm sorry, he's in a boat with his friends, And uh, turn over a few pages in your Bible to Matthew 14, and you know the story well. Jesus is walking toward these disciples, and he's walking on the water. And, And Peter's the only one engaging with Jesus. He says, Lord, if it's you, Peter says, tell me to come out on the water. So, Jesus opens another door. He says, Come. That's all he says. The door's open. Get out of the boat. And. Uh
0: huh. So, there, there we go. It's another invitation for purpose. Uh huh. Yeah, that's not the point of uh, the walking on the water bit.
5: Then Peter got down out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. But then he saw the wind and he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. You know, and it's like that with every opportunity, every open.
0: Yes, so that that was basically an example of a, of an opportunity, a door opening. Uh huh. Yeah, that's weird.
5: Door from God. It's going to be a little frightening. It's going to be a little uncertain, but that's okay. The thing with open doors in the Bible, I, I hope you understand this, is that every. Opportunity is not an open door from God. The open doors from God always involve you doing something for his kingdom. I have these three thoughts that I want to put on the screen. If you're trying to understand what is, how can you know what your purpose is? When the door opens from God, first of all, it will use your passions. It will be something that you're passionate about. The second thing is the open door will use your abilities. God has been preparing you for years. You have a background, you have an education, you have a skill. You do some things in this world better than everybody else. I know that about you. And then the third thing is, you know it's the right open door when it's something that God can use. It's not just for our own...
1: Yeah,
0: can you show me in the Bible where this list exists that helps us understand when we know an opportunity is actually from God uh, using these criteria? I'd like to see that text, please
5: good that we step through the open doors, but it's for the good for the spreading of the kingdom of God. I have a key idea I want to put on the screen and kind of take this thought home with you. Maybe you want to write it down. God opens doors of possibility.
0: Vi- yeah, I, that's, that's an interesting thought. Again, can you show me where this thought is taught in the Bible itself? All of the texts you are referring to,
5: none of them are actually teaching what you're saying. Inviting you to step through to the most meaningful life and to work with Him to expand the kingdom of heaven on earth. And maybe you've never been sure of your purpose. Or God's plan for you in this world. I invite you. I challenge you today. To not have peace. Until you know what your purpose. And God's plan is is for your life. Because I want to say this next. That God has a very clear purpose for your life. In Matthew chapter 16. We read about Jesus being super clear with Peter. About what he wants him to do next. We read this. Matthew 16 verse 18. I will tell you. That you, Peter, so his name is Simon. And now Jesus says, your name is going to be Peter, which means rock. He says, he says, now you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And then Jesus uses a door metaphor. And he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, I have this very clear purpose for your life. I said that the soul longs for purpose. And, and I want you to know that God has a a plan just like Peter's.
0: Yeah, again, that t- portion of scripture is the, well, the important one where Peter actually confesses who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the son of the living God, and you've just ignored all of that to key in on, you know, he, this was an open door opportunity for him. What?
5: For you, something to do. For his kingdom. The soul, when we don't know what our purpose is, I think alarm bells start to go off. Yeah, I think you don't know what the purpose of scripture is. Weird. When any of us start to feel like we're wasting our life, we feel this deep dissatisfaction where we are. And I think it's godly. The problem is sometimes we think we are stuck where we are. And we don't have the option to live the kind of life that we've always dreamed of living. And I want to say no.
0: Let me read this text. I'm just like flummoxed here. I mean, Matthew 16, 13. Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. That's right. He takes his disciples outside of Israel. You know, to a pagan territory. Caesarea Philippi. There was a grotto with all these little, you know, you know place where you can put all these different deities, and you know, the Pan, you know, the you know, the you know, the portal of Pan is there. I mean. He's in pagan territory, idolatrous territory, and and he says this, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So Matthew 16, this portion of Scripture is specifically asking the question, Who is Jesus? Simon answers, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the rock of his confession that Jesus is the Christ. And he's going to build his church on that rock. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah, at least at that point. That's, this text is not about Peter finding some purpose or some door of opportunity opening up in his life. This portion of scripture is
5: specifically about Jesus and who he is. Oh, You don't have to stay stuck. Because maybe there's a passion or an ability that you have, but you've never, you've never lived it out. Maybe you've dreamed of doing something, but you've never done it. I think there's things that all of us dream of doing in this lifetime, but not all of us are actually doing it. Maybe you've dreamed of being a writer, but you're not writing yet. Uh, Maybe you have an eye for beauty and you've, you've dreamed about being a photographer or a painter. Uh, maybe you know more about fast pitch softball than most college coaches. You don't, uh, Maybe you've dreamed of hiking the Himalayas one day or teaching English in China. Maybe you give speeches and people actually listen. Or maybe you lead and people follow. You have this gift. Maybe you're like a kid magnet and junior hires love to be around you. You're different than all the other dads. You don't wear cargo shorts or Crocs. And so kids love to be around you. That's you. But maybe you have that ability to lead, but you're not using it yet. Uh, Maybe... You've, you've dreamed of leading whitewater rafting trips down the Colorado. I don't know what it is. But the thing is, most of us are not doing what we feel God put us here to do. The problem is we give up on our dreams. Because someone criticized you or someone gave you a D or someone cut you from the team. Or someone told you you weren't smart enough. Or you didn't have the right background. Or someone told you you didn't have the right education. And someone broke your spirit, or someone told you you couldn't afford it, or somebody gave the job to somebody else, and then you listened to the critics, and you gave up, and you quit dreaming. But there's a version of you that shines through every once in a while. We get glimpses of the best you when you do the things that God made you to do. And I want to say today, those that's the life you need to go after. It's kind of like this, my... My, in justice calling, I write about uh, my brother-in-law being living in Uganda because he talks about one weekend in Uganda when a guy named Bob Goff came to visit. Uh, Bob Goff, maybe you know the name. He wrote a bestseller by the name uh, titled "Live Not Live Love uh, Love Love Does," and he writes "Love Does." And uh, so he's out in Uganda, and Steve's hosting him, and Bob has a meeting with a with a Ugandan member of parliament, and so they're sitting at lunch. And this member of parliament says to Bob, he says, Bob, he says, my career in politics is over. He says, I've reached my term limit. He says, I can't run again. He says, but Bob, I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. You know, I, I know he can use it, but I don't know how. So Bob says... Well, what do you dream of doing? And the guy says, well, you know, I dream of one day helping the youth of Uganda to thrive. And Bob says, no, 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 no. That's just political talk. Don't give me that. He said, what keeps you up at night? What do you lay in bed dreaming about doing? And the guy says, well, actually, I've always wanted. Do you even need a crucified and risen Savior for this message? No, you don't to play in a band. I want to play the guitar in a band, Bob. I've I've never told anyone that. So Steve says, Bob starts to hit the table. That's it. That's it. That's what you have to do. You have to learn to play the guitar and start a band. And the guy goes, yeah, but I don't know how to play the guitar. So Bob says, what kind of music do you like to listen to? He says, well... He said, There's this Christian musician in America named Brandon Heath, and I have like four of his CDs. I love Brandon Heath. I want to play the guitar like Brandon Heath. Bob says, Brandon Heath, let's call him right now. He's dating my daughter. And so, and so, true story. So he picks up the phone and dials Brandon. Brandon answers, and I asked Brandon about this when he was at the Grove a few months ago. Brandon says, It was like three in the morning. I'm like, Bob, why are you calling it three? Bob's such a spaz. You know, he's calling it anytime. Bob says, don't worry, I'm in Uganda. You have to tell this this member of parliament that he can learn to play the guitar and he can write music, he can compose and he can tour Uganda. And so Brandon says, yes, you can make music for God in Uganda the same way I make music in America for Americans. And so Bob buys him a guitar. I don't know the rest of the story. That's just as far as I've gotten on it. But that's like your life. There are some things you've dreamed of doing, and you've put it off. Why is that just like my life?
0: I mean, why are you doing this one-size-fits-all as if we're somehow all in high school still trying to figure out what we need to do with our life? What about the people in your congregation who've done, you know, raised their kids, had their career, they're retired, and they don't even know it yet, but they're just days away from dying What about them? Why are you preaching like this is even found in the Bible? None of this is. You're just making
5: this up. You thought you can't. And I just want to say, what is so valuable? What is so important to you? What are you so passionate about that you must give your one life to it? The next thought that I want to share with you from Peter's life is this. Stop sitting outside the closed doors. So I'm going to close our door here because we read about Peter sitting outside a door. So turn over in your Bibles with me to John chapter 18. And we read this. And John John 18 the screen says 8 it's 18 verse 15. So I'll set the scene for you. Peter and John are following Jesus as he's been arrested. He's, he's taken first to the house of the high priest. And Peter and John are following at a distance. We read, we read that in Luke. Simon Peter and another disciple, this is verse 15, were following Jesus. Because the disciple was known to the high priest, this is John, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside the door. So do you see the door is here. John follows Jesus through, but Peter is stuck sitting outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back. So he comes back through the door and he grabs Peter and he spoke to the servant girl on duty. Some of your Bibles will read, he spoke to the girl, the servant girl who was guarding the door. So there's this girl sitting at the door, letting some people in and some people she's not letting in. Verse 17. And then she starts to quiz Peter. So Peter's trying to get through the door and she's interrogating him. The girl at the door, guarding the door. You aren't one of, of this man's disciples too, are you? The girl guarding the door asks Peter, and then what does Peter do? He lies to her. He says, no, I'm not. And then he starts to curse and swear, we read in Luke, and he gets really angry. I think in life, there are people that sit outside the door. So Jesus has gone through. You are aware this is
0: where Peter denies Christ. Wow, it's like he has no concept of the magnitude of the passages that he's reading. He's just looking for places of
5: opportunities and purpose and stuff like that. This is wow. And Peter's supposed to go through, but I think there are people that sit outside the door telling you not to. I think in life there are some people I'll describe this morning as closed door people. And they're closed door people. Yeah, right. There are some people who are open-door people. I think John is one of those open-door people. John came back, and he gets his buddy, and he says, Hey, Jesus is on the other side. we got to go through this door. But you have somebody blocking the door, somebody interrogating him, criticizing him. No, he's about to deny Christ. Have you even read the Gospels? Maybe in your life, you have too many closed-door people, and maybe you've been listening to them for too long. They've been criticizing you and holding you back and not seeing that God has something so special, so
0: Right, yeah, that servant girl, she was holding Peter back from his destiny and his purpose. She was a closed-door person, yeah.
5: This is demonic. It is unbelievable. Significant, So huge and meaningful for you on the other side of that door. They don't believe in you. They don't believe God can use you. Can I say this this morning? Stop spending time with those kinds of people so much and find people. Who are open door people like John. That come back and they say hey come through this with me. And maybe you need to be that person to someone else. Someone who's been left out of a great opportunity. And say you need to step through this door. I've seen your gifts. I've seen your abilities. I've seen your passions. So I have stopped sitting outside the door with the wrong kind of people. One last thought this morning from Peter's life. As we look at him as a case study. I have your purpose Usually includes a justice calling. It almost always includes a justice component. Do you know what they say about the opportunities that God gives people in the Bible? The open doors is that those open doors are never solely just for the person it's open for. It's opened also for the good, for the sake of. Of others, That's how you know it's the right open door. All right, we're going to turn forward in our Bibles one more time, Acts chapter 10. Let me just set the stage for you. Jesus is gone. He's ascended into heaven. Peter is starting this new church. But now it's it's in the late afternoon, and he's hungry. And he's gone on a roof, and he's fallen asleep. And he's really hungry. We read this in Acts 10. And what do you think Peter starts to dream about? Food. He starts to dream about food because he's hungry. And in this dream, he hears the voice of God uh, saying, not just eat this food, it's food. That the Jewish people would not eat. It was food that was banned. And the the voice of God is saying, no, Peter, eat. And then the voice of God says, there are some men downstairs waiting to take you to meet an Italian, a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. I want you to go to his house. But Peter doesn't want to go to the Roman man's house. He's never stepped into the house of a Gentile person. And so finally, the voice of God, this is verse 19, says, get up and go. Verse 20, do not hesitate to go. Rarely in the Bible, when the door opens, does God say, stay and get comfortable. It doesn't ever say that. It always says, go. Something's on the other side, something new. It's an adventure with me. It doesn't say, stay, make yourself comfortable. It's all, find a couch, put your feet up. That's not how the Bible goes. So we read this, verse 27. So Peter goes with the three men. The next day, Peter went inside, so he steps through the door into Cornelius's house. And in verse 28, and he
4: says,
0: Yeah, the door that he stepped into was a real door. There's no allegorical meaning for the door as far as something to do with your purpose and, you know, an opportunity, and you need to step through it.
5: The people gathered there. You are well aware that is it against our laws for a Jew to associate with a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone unclean. By the way, let me just pause here. Peter kept seeing this food that he wasn't allowed to eat. And, and, and G, the voice of God is saying, go to the Italian man's house, maybe even eat with him. And Peter's saying, no, I think what Peter didn't know, he had been raised on hummus and pita bread. That's what I think. And, and he didn't know that Italians make cannolis, calzones, deep dish pizza, mozzarella cheese, all of those things come from the Italians. He might have moved quicker. Anyway, so we pick up. That's not in your text, but uh, I'm trying to help. All right. So he says, Jews do not associate with Gentiles, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Move down to verse 34. Then Peter spoke again. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts people. From every nation, regardless, and I'll just add to that, regardless of their background or ethnicity or race or whether they're a, a Roman or an Italian or a Greek, that God loves them all. And he wants Peter to start to to start a church that includes all of them. Do you see this justice component and Peter's purpose and Peter's?
0: Oh, yeah. See, there was a justice component in Peter's purpose. And so just because there was a justice component in his, well, there's got to be a justice component in your purpose thingy too. This is all nonsense. This man is not actually teaching God's word. These are empty words. They are worthless words. This is a worthless, empty teaching that has nothing whatsoever to do with any of the texts that he's touching.
5: Wow. So I'll just end here this morning and challenge you. Yeah, I think you've done enough damage already. You with this thought that maybe today God is opening a door for you. And if he's not, then pray for that. And the choice is yours. This moment, this day is ripe with opportunity. And possibilities for you to step through a door to something new. And maybe you've been hesitating. Maybe you've been waiting. And I don't want to say stop.
0: Yeah, maybe there's an open door opportunity thingy, you know, because
5: justice and stuff. This is unbelievable. Your life is passing you by. It's going. The time to act is now. It's today.
0: Well, there we go. Um, Wow. Utterly useless, totally worthless, completely empty, vapid. He doesn't care what the biblical text says. I mean, seriously, he goes to the great confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And yeah, he just totally sees just this is a purpose moment opportunity thingy in his life, right? Yeah, the great confession of who Jesus is. There's Jesus on trial. He's never committed a single sin. And there's Peter. He's about to deny Jesus three times. And Christ has said in his teaching, the one who denies me before people, I will deny before the Father. And oh, no, it's just about, well, there, are there closed-door people in your life? Right, yeah. Uh, this is unbelievable. This man is utterly blind, totally deluded. No clue how to rightly handle God's word, doesn't even care that it actually has a real meaning. He's just about scratching, itching ears and getting a paycheck. You can be an atheist and believe the message that he taught. You don't even need a God for it. Yet alone a crucified and risen Savior. Very sad. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is... Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.